Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to the Your Wealth podcast. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Today's markets are incredibly challenging for even seasoned investors to rationalise and most of us appreciate there are many factors at play at the moment. One explanation for the share market's astonishing rally since March is the incredible amounts of monetary stimulus going on around the world. So most of us have some understanding of what monetary stimulus is and how it works, but as central banks get more and more creative, sometimes it's really easy to feel like you've got absolutely no idea what's going on. Today, I'm joined by Chris Joy, who is the founder and portfolio manager of Holubar Capital, a fixed income manager. He's a columnist for the Financial Review and a former employee of the RBA. So he's incredibly well qualified to explain the extraordinary circumstances in which we find ourselves. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on the show, Gemma. So Chris, you actually get all of this stuff, so I'm very grateful you can explain it all to us. Central banks have traditionally had this role of setting interest rates, and most people understand that, but they've started to get a bit creative uh, during the GFC and then post that. Can you explain to us in simple terms what the Federal Reserve in the US and the ECB in Europe started doing in order to stabilise their economies during that period? Yeah, I think the best way to explain it is that um, in the old days, as in more or less pre-GFC, central banks used to be limited uh, or restricted to really focusing on adjusting the overnight cash rate or short-term interest rates. Um, And for listeners... They're the interest rates um, that really apply to, say, a variable rate savings account or a variable rate home loan. Now, when you take out a, say, five-year home loan, that five-year home loan uh, that's fixed rate uh, prices off a five-year effective cash rate. And the proxy or the benchmark for the five-year cash rate is the yield on a five-year government bond. Um, so that's you know widely regarded as the risk-free rate, and the same is true of a term deposit with a five-year tenant. So that's going to price off the five-year government bond yield. In the global financial crisis, as central banks approached a zero uh, short-term cash rate, they started thinking about well, how do we reduce those yields in the longer term? And the way they did that was by buying those long-term bonds. So government bonds initially, and then they extended to buying uh, corporate bonds and other related securities. And by buying those long-term bonds, they push up their prices. And when the bond has a fixed rate of interest, a higher price means a lower yield. So the way to reduce that fixed yield is to increase the price. It's the same in equities, like if CBA's share price increases, all things being equal for a given dividend yield uh, or a given dividend payment, the yield will be lower. Um, So these asset purchases, Gemma, are what we call quantitative easing. I don't think it's a very good term. It's a classic sort of jargon-esque sort of financial markets slash economics uh, explanation. But that's what we've seen in the GFC, and that's also what we've seen in COVID-19. We've seen effectively the renewal of asset purchases 
by central banks. The other thing they've done in this crisis and in 0809 is they do a lot of direct lending to banks and businesses. So rather than just pushing down the short term or in addition to pushing down the short term cash rate and buying long term bonds to push down their yields, they also offer direct loans to companies and businesses at very, very low rates. Thank you so much. It makes me feel so much better when you say quantitative easing is a terrible term because I think most of us are like, that doesn't make a lot of sense intuitively. Uh, But your explanation is awesome. Probably the first question I would put to you is, why are they so keen to push yields so low? What's the purpose of that? Well, really, they're trying to reduce the return on savings so to encourage consumers and businesses to think more about investment um, or taking on more risk. So central banks actually want to actively encourage us by reducing the return on the risk-free rate to chase yield, to chase risk. Um, And we're seeing this here in Australia with TD rates uh, around 1% for 12-month money. You know, investors are being forced to look at um, other alternatives to TDs. So, you know, the next cab off the rank is normally senior ranking bonds issued by the banks and then subordinated bonds issued by those same banks and then hybrids and then corporate bonds and high-yield bonds uh, and at the limit, equities. And we've actually seen some central banks, interestingly, around the world buy equities. So the Japanese have done that. The Swiss have done that. Uh, Why are they doing that? Again, to bid up prices um, to help uh, support companies that want to raise equity capital at a relatively cheap rate. And in the COVID-19 crisis, we have seen the US Federal Reserve buy what are called high-yield bonds or junk bonds. And they're basically bonds that have quite high risks of going into default. So, you know, Virgin's a good example. Virgin issued some senior unsecured bonds on the ASX in November. $325 million worth, and they had um, a de facto credit rating of double B, which basically means they're high yield. They're not investment grade. Uh, they have high risks of default. We looked at these securities, and it was very clear to us that Virgin was unprofitable and over leveraged, and you'd be an absolute idiot to buy them, uh, even at what looked like a, an ostensibly attractive 8% interest rate. And lo and behold, you know, that's exactly what's happened. You know, Virgin's gone bust and the bondholders have been completely wiped out, unfortunately. So the, the I guess, summary here is the central banks want you to invest. They want you to shift your money out of riskless savings, so bank deposits, into other parts of the economy to support greater activity. It's such a good explanation, but then suddenly you're talking about pushing people into investing in stuff like the Virgin example. So it's, it's a challenging situation for investors to face into. Do I get zero uh, and after inflation less than zero and after tax and inflation less than less than zero? Uh, or do I go into things that are much higher than my risk appetite might un- otherwise allow me to do? One thing that I find really astonishing, and I know other people have felt the same way, is it feels like interest rates have never really normalised post-GFC. And so we've had... Are we talking 12 years now of really low rates, the lowest in history? What are the implications of that? 
Yeah, that's a good question, Gemma. Um, and I just say on those low rates, I mean, it is such a big problem for savers that in the pure cash options of many super funds today, you're actually earning no return at all or potentially a negative return because after the super funds fees, your cash balance is actually declining. That's pretty remarkable. So I'd encourage listeners uh, to think about that. Um, so, you know, what are the implications of low rates? Basically, the, the low rates that we've had um, obviously support much more leverage. They support uh, much more borrowing. Um, we have had, you know, the US Federal Reserve, for example, try and normalise its cash rate. So it lifted from around zero to almost 3%. And now it's back down to around zero. And if the central bankers are right, and we're going to have these extraordinarily low rates for a long time, that basically means you can take on more debt, you can leverage up, um, and uh, you can use that uh, greater debt uh, servicing capacity to buy assets, which obviously then results in asset price inflation. Um, you know, we've seen that in the Aussie housing market since 2008. We had very strong uh, house price growth between 2012 and 2017. Sydney house prices rose by more than 50%. Um, and it's entirely you know, possible we'll, we'll see something similar again, but it also creates vulnerabilities because uh, if rates ever do normalise, if they ever do increase again, then we're likely to see uh, a lot of stress. That then begs the question, well, what could catalyse or trigger higher rates? And the only thing that can really precipitate that will be inflation. But we've just had a huge demand shock. There's much higher unemployment around the world. Wages growth is anemic. So there's no real inflation pressure right now. Having said that, Governments are, you know, spending a lot of money to ballast out of COVID-19. They have to pay for that. They're doing that through issuing government bonds. And if they just issued them to investors, interest rates would be much higher. So they have central banks buying these bonds. So the central banks are actually funding the uh, public bond issuance effectively. In Japan, for example, the central bank owns more than half of all the government bonds on issue. And here in Australia, the RBA is also buying tens of billions of dollars worth of government bonds. Now, if that process continues, which I think it will, and central banks end up buying most of the bonds on issue, that will be potentially very inflationary because uh, there is a risk that the value of money as a medium of exchange could depreciate, which would be inflationary. So effectively, we'd say this is funny money, we don't trust it anymore. And we could see a, you know, over the next 10, 15 years at some point, a hyperinflationary cycle. Um, normally, though, those sorts of events have been associated with major power conflict. And coincidentally, you know, we are on the cusp of. Uh, much greater major power tensions, particularly between China and the West. We've recently hired six different China advisors, and our assessment is that there is a 25 to 50% probability of some sort of conflict 
between China and the US over the next 10 years? There's so much to think about there. Probably the first question I would ask you, and I'm trying to pick through all the different things that investors have to pay attention to and the things that you've raised. The first one that I find really interesting is this view that inflation uh, is completely under control. And it is in terms of consumer spending, I guess. But the question becomes when, when housing is your biggest expense and house prices, as you say, increase 50% in five years, you know, are there other inflationary pressures on households and on individuals that you worry about? Yeah, obviously electricity and utility bills have been a big one. But I think the one that um, is going to be most interesting is housing. Our view is that house prices will kind of flatline to fall by 5% in the next um, three to six months. And then we think the current, uh, well, the boom that started between June last year and April this year will reassert itself. So we actually think house prices will increase by another 10 to 20%. And that's, as you say, basically one of the biggest household consumption items because we either rent uh, and that's how we get our shelter or we buy a house and 70% of us buy a house. So I think that's the one to watch out for. I don't think there's going to be any short-term inflation pressure. It is possible uh, we see some pressure on uh, the cost of food uh, as there are supply chain disruptions around the world. Um, but the one we're particularly focused on is housing. It's, it's certainly the one that plenty of Australians focus on as well, <laughs> whether they own a home or they don't. It's front of mind for so many of us. Uh, as a person who's continually investing in her home, uh, not as an investment, just spending lots of money on it, it's always uh, front of mind. Uh, so it puts us in a bit of an interesting situation. So we, we call this don't fight the Fed, and it's an American term, obviously, because we ours is called the RBA, our central bank. Uh, and the theory behind that, can you explain it for a start? So the term comes up all the time, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed. The new one that's on Twitter, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is seen that one, which is simply <laughs> that uh, money printing is happening. And if money printing is happening, you can put your money behind assets because they're going to keep going up in value. What's your view on that? Yeah, the, the idea that you shouldn't fight the Fed, which I agree with, um, is that the Fed can ultimately control asset prices by just buying a lot of the assets. And that's what they've been doing. Um, and they can print as much money as they want. There's no limit. Um, so there's no limit, therefore, to how much they can buy. And, you know, we thought we would get in late February pretty extreme QE, so asset purchases um, in March as a result of COVID. And so I actually spent $942 million buying bonds in late February and March on the presumption we'd get huge QE that would bid up prices and reduce yields. And that's obviously you know, what happened. We've seen you know, unprecedented QE. And um, so you, you can't ultimately prevail when the bazooka has uh, no limit to the number of bullets it can fire or projectiles, I should say. Um, and the the current situation is we have this tension between short-term concerns about fundamentals because of COVID and then the bid provided by central banks, which has been really driving asset prices. Uh, and, you know, I think that in very high-quality liquid assets, the central banks are always going to prevail. Uh, we think the central banks are going to win. 
That's a really great summary. And to be honest, if people only listen to three minutes of this podcast, that may be all they need to know. That uh, it's dangerous to take a view against uh, the guys with all the money. Do you think the Australian experience is somewhat different? Or do you think the fact that the RBA is actually now buying assets puts us in largely the same category? No, yeah, I think we're very much in the same camp. And the Fed's asset um, buying really affects the prices of all investments globally because we have all the central banks following suit. So we have the ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, everyone globally, you know, the RBA here in Australia, all buying government bonds and lending to businesses uh, and lending to banks. So as long as they feel that this is a short-term shock and they want to provide a liquidity and stimulus bridge between now and when the shock passes, presumably when vaccines are available, um, then uh, they're going to be, you know, I guess, very convicted and committed in supporting the economy. Um, and I, I'm, you know, sympathetic to the uh, you know, policy solution. I certainly advised the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, the RBA and APRA um, in late February that this is what I think uh, I thought they should do. Um, and, you know, the RBA has been quite effective in cutting the cash rate. We've seen you know, mortgage rates fall by between 75 and 150 basis points since mid last year. Um, and we've obviously seen a big bounce in equities um, on the back of that QE-led bid and this sense that um, the central banks will help us journey towards that final end game of relative new normality because the economy will never be the same. You know, this is going to scar people permanently. There will be permanently you know, greater public and private debt. Um, I think for a period of time, people will be um, you know, semi-permanently more risk-averse. Um, there will be some businesses like Virgin <clears throat> that don't come back or come back in a very different form. Um, so they go through you know, liquidation processes. And um, so, so it is new normal. But in the meantime, there is no doubt that central bank liquidity, and when they say liquidity, what are, they, you know, what are we talking about? What they're really talking about is either central banks buying stuff all the way from government bonds through to equities and central banks lending money to banks and businesses, and they are doing both. I think that will be the dominant influence in markets. Um, I don't necessarily think equities are an amazing um, you know, buy right at these levels, um, but I think it's going to be hard for markets to retest the all-time lows that we saw in March. That's a really interesting point, and I think a lot of our investors will be paying very close attention to that. Um, I, know, I know we've got plenty of investors. We've got a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines, investors waiting for an opportunity to, uh, they're hoping for a second leg down, effectively, that will allow them to get back in if they missed the uh, they missed the bottom, uh, or anywhere near it, in fact. It bounced pretty quickly, so a lot of people were anticipating a sort of a grind down in the same sense as the GFC or some of the downturns they'd seen previously, and then they were a bit shocked at came back so quickly and they kind of feel like they missed their opportunity. Given that we have this issue of central banks really underwriting asset prices and underwriting risk for investors, are there areas that you would be putting your money to work? Clearly that's yeah, what I you mean, do. <laughs> yeah, Gemma, as I said, we, we bought almost a billion dollars of assets in late February, March. I have net sold about 700 million um, over April, May, and June. So we have taken profits on those purchases. And 
there's no doubt that March um, really presented some of the best buying opportunities we have ever seen. You know, in the hybrid market, if you pick the lows in March, you got 20, 25% returns, um, you know, within a few months as um, one example. In terms of things that we still like, uh, we are, as you mentioned, fixed income investors. So we're participating in senior subordinated and hybrid issues. Um, the senior bond market looks fairly well valued. So that was very cheap, but we've taken a lot of profits uh, on our senior bank bond holdings. Um, the major bank T2 or subordinated bond market is one we really like. And we spent quite a lot of money over the last few months uh, buying tier two bonds. So they're currently trading at about 2.3% uh, or they're paying a spread of about 23 to 2.4% above cash. We also still like the hybrid market and that is paying spreads of about 37 to 3.8% above cash. Uh, now, pre-COVID tier two subordinated bonds issued by the major banks were only paying 1.6 above cash, and the hybrid market was paying about 2.7% above cash. So we think there's still a lot of mean reversion, and therefore we think there'll be some capital growth or capital gains as prices appreciate. Um, they're probably our two focus areas. I don't really like the high, uh, the high yield or junk bond market because we're seeing a huge increase in defaults in high yield. So in Australia, you know, examples of opportunities are really the uh, listed investment trusts on the ASX, the so-called LITs that invest in high yield um, that have obviously um, really faced challenging times um, in March uh, as a result of uh, problems in the high yield market. Um, and we think defaults will increase. We also think there'll be significant increases in credit rating downgrades. So the high yield market is something we're steering clear of. Um, but I think if you're focused on bonds issued by really strong companies and mainly the banks for us, we don't uh, – actually, no, we hold one corporate bond. I bought uh, a senior ranking bond issued by Optus last week. They are wholly owned by Singtel, which is in turn 50% owned by the Singaporean government. So, you know, the government-guaranteed banks I really like um, in terms of investing in their, their bonds and hybrids uh, and other – uh, you know, semi-government guaranteed businesses we're also partial to. Um, but generally, I'm not uh, a particular fan right now of most corporate bonds, <clears throat> and I'm not a fan of the high yield market. Thank you. You've raised a few things there that I think are really interesting. I, so if I apply a layperson's view to, <laughs> to what you're saying, there is still risk out there, right, if you're not investing in the right assets and the right companies. So despite the fact that clearly... Uh, a lot of risk is being underwritten and people can afford to put money to work because central banks in particular and to an extent fiscal policy are there to support people through tough times. This issue about zombie firms and stuff that's not very credit worthy will come back to bite you if you start leaping in on the wrong thing. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, Jimmy, you've absolutely nailed it. That is the issue. I mean, the problem with the RBA encouraging us to chase yield and chase risk is people are going to run back into sort of the virgins of the world. And <clears throat> that is deeply concerning. And, you know, I warned about the high yield market 
uh, in uh, late last year and early this year. I said it would be the source of the next uh, subprime style uh, event. And <clears throat> lo and behold, we've seen you know the high yield market have sort of um, really quite cataclysmic problems in March particularly. So I would really caution readers or listeners, I should say, um, to think very carefully about investing in any businesses that they're not really familiar with, that aren't household names, particularly you know smaller or mid-cap companies that aren't too big to fail because obviously you've got the banks and you know, the Telstra's of the world that are too big to fail. And then you've got, um, you know, mums and dads that are, um, you know, being supported through fiscal policy and monetary policy. But there is a middle market where basically you have businesses that are not too small to matter to the government and not too big to fail. So these are particularly things like, um, again, uh, Virgin, but also, uh, you know, commercial property trusts, commercial property Investors that are getting absolutely annihilated right now, especially those with office and retail exposures. And um, there is a vulnerable underbelly in the economy um, that is not being bailed out as um, aggressively as those two other polarities. And I think there's a lot of risk in that sector. So I think at the very least, listeners as a first port of call should always speak to uh, experts like yourself and uh, make uh, or avail themselves of really good financial advisors um, and then they should interrogate everything they're investing in. One of the biggest traps I've found uh, in fixed income is when you're investing in a fixed income fund, um, often you know, you'll see a brand name and say, okay, well, that sounds credible. So the fund manager might sound credible, but when the tide receded in March, we have seen that a lot of these portfolios held assets that you would never have heard of. Um, and I think this is an absolute key to fixed income investing. If you're going to invest in a fund, I'd make sure you could see every single bond or security in that portfolio and make sure you're comfortable with all the names. Because the traditional paradigm was just to say, listen, I'll diversify and I'll have a portfolio of, say, you know, 150 or 300 bonds and assume that you're okay. But in a recession, a lot of those businesses get into strife. And we saw in March, a lot of the funds have a lot of problems with liquidity, uh, a lot of de facto gating of funds through huge increases in exit spreads. Um, in our portfolios, we were basically only invested in cash and securities issued by government guaranteed banks, and we had no problems at all with liquidity. In fact, since the start of the year, I have bought and sold over $8 billion of bonds. So we've been incredibly active. Um, and, uh, you know, over the prior six-month period, we only bought and sold $3.4 billion of bonds. Um, so I think you've got to understand all the individual names. That, that's what I would strongly encourage folks to think about. And don't diversify for the sake of it. Diversification is not an excuse for taking credit risk that you don't understand. That's such an interesting discussion because in equities, we talk about diversification all the time. Credit risk diversification is quite a different thing. I think something that literally everyone listening will take away 
and it's a really interesting point to make is when something's guaranteed uh, by the government, then your a, your risk is much lower, but your diversification is much less of a problem, right? So if you've got all the banks, uh, <laughs> but they're all guaranteed, you're in a very different situation to if you have a very widely diversified portfolio, but none of it's guaranteed. Yeah, Gemma, that's, that's actually crucial. So I used to be criticised by the so-called street or you know, the brokers, and they'd say, Chris, why don't you have, you know, you know, Virgin and the airports and, you know, why don't you have these subprime um, home loan lenders and these non-banks? And it was simply because I knew there'd be no liquidity in a crisis and I knew those were the guys who would blow up in a crisis. And we have run um, historically much more focused portfolios but as you say, focused on government guaranteed businesses where you don't need as much diversification. Um, and I think that's a real lesson from this crisis. I think we've all learned a lot from this crisis, actually. Uh, my husband tells this hilarious story. He did uh, work experience with a stockbroker back in the 90s in Tasmania who told him, never buy anything that eats, floats or flies, uh, which is one that suddenly feels really prescient. <laughs> It's, uh, it feels very wise all of a sudden. There's a lot of risk in those things that uh, that you might not have anticipated. Certainly a pandemic wasn't on all of our minds coming into all of this. You've mentioned the property market a couple of times, and I know that all of our listeners, whether they're big property investors or not, even if it's just their, their personal home, it's just such an issue for people. But it also is one that is on people's minds because with half a million people putting their mortgages on hold, they're quite nervous about their bank investments. Do you have any concerns about that? About the banks or about property Probably more about the credit risk of households where people are having to put their mortgages on hold, take a repayment holiday of six months, and then whether or not they're going to have capacity to come back and start repaying those and what impact that might have on the banks. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sanguine, which means positive. So I'm of the view that firstly, the Aussie economy will bounce back pretty quickly. I think you know, medium term growth will be modest and subdued, but I think we'll return to a new normal fairly rapidly. And that's been the experience since May. Secondly, I think that the banks will be very, very flexible and understanding. And I think the government is not going to pull JobKeeper or JobSeeker um, just for the sake of being parsimonious. So I think the government and the banks are working with APRA right now to make sure that there's no September cliff and there's a smooth transition and I have the utmost confidence that that's what we'll get. I, I think you know Australia has tons of fiscal ammunition to provide more stimulus if we need it, and I'm not expecting waves of defaults post uh, September. Even areas like travel, tourism, you know, as many Aussies travel overseas as there are people that come here to uh, effectively buy our tourism services. So I think with the borders shut, you'll see a huge increase in staycations that will mostly offset the loss of foreign tourism. So I'm pretty constructive. Um, I think the banks have been building their capital reserves for almost 10 years. They've raised about $50 billion of first loss equity to protect them. And they've been very, I think, cautious and conservative with their provisions so far. So... I'm I'm pretty I'm very positive bank credit risk. I'm not worried about that at all. Um, as I said, I'm kind of neutral on the housing market in the short term. I think prices could be 
flat to fall up to 5%. They rose in the first few months of the year through to April, probably fallen about 1.5% over May and June. So I think that certainly coming into um, Q1 next year, the market will bounce back. And we've already seen a good bounce in auction clearance rates, which in Sydney and Melbourne have been around 60 to 70%. Um, and um, what else was there, Gemma? Did I miss anything? Oh, the only other thing I'd say is, again, I'm very, very bearish uh, commercial property. So office property, retail property, um, you know, we, a lot of fixed income funds invest in bonds issued by uh, commercial property uh, owners. And we saw over the weekend, Blackstone has said that it is defaulting on some of its, uh, some of the bonds issued by uh, its hotel businesses in the US. And I expect to see more of that. So I think commercial property will be painful um, and that will hurt the banks a little bit, but it's a relatively small exposure. So almost all of our investors hold some form of banking exposure, often through hybrids. Uh, they certainly have loved bank shares for a long time and they haven't haven't had the greatest run, obviously, over the last five years. Um, they've had a lovely little run since March, though. They've had a good time. Uh, so I think they'll find that reasonably, reasonably encouraging, make them feel a little bit better supported. Chris, you're really prolific with your views. You do a wonderful job of putting your thoughts out there, helping people understand markets. Uh, you take a position on stuff, which is fantastic, so people can, uh, can have some confidence in where they think things might be going. Where do people go to find out more about your funds and your thoughts on various subjects? Yeah, you can find out about our funds at coolabarcapital.com. Um, we also have... Uh, a podcast called Complexity Premier, which you can find just by Googling uh, Complexity Premier and podcast. Um, you can catch me on Twitter at, at CJOYE. I'm pretty prolific uh, on LinkedIn. So you can look at me uh, or look at the stuff I post up there um, as well. And then every Friday online, I write a column for the AFR, which also appears on Saturday in print. I think that's, uh, yeah, probably a fair summary of my channels. Oh, actually, one other place you can get the stuff I write is on Livewire. Livewire is a really, really good platform. It's free and I post probably most regularly um, all of our analysis there. That I have no idea how you do it all, to be honest with you. I don't know how you fit it all in, but Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on the show, Jim. It was great. Thank you so much for listening now, as always. We do love to hear from you. So if there are any topics you'd like to hear more about or guests you'd like to hear from, please just email your suggestions to yourwealth at nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.